Hey friends, our virtual immersion continues here with a conversation with Rabbi David Jaffe of the Curva Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. David and I met in East Jerusalem over a decade ago and instantly became brothers. I know that his work among the Jewish community matches the work that we're doing among the Christian community. This conversation was electric because of the trust that David and I share, but also his very unique invitations that he offers for we as Christians to live into our destiny a revolutionary love. Here's the conversation. I'm just so grateful to see you. And in this moment in time, in the last two months, you and I have been texting back and forth quite a lot, but this is the first time I've actually been able to see you since this horror has unfolded. And it does me well, my friend, to share a screen with you. I wonder how you would maybe introduce yourself to us and, and you as a human being first, and we can talk about your work second, because I think it pours out of who you are, but yeah, introduce yourself and help us maybe locate yourself in this story that we're unfolding and that many U.S. Christians in particular, I think, are paying attention to in a very different kind of way. Sure. Thanks a lot, Jared. Really amazing to be with you. And uh, I caught a little bit of what you said before. And uh, this relationship has been, as you know, so important to me. And uh, so I can really we found the brother in each other in this. So to locate myself, so people here, hi, Rabbi David Jaffe, I'm physically living in Southeast Massachusetts, the United States, and was, you know, and is still, I see the Walton Nodland. And I grew up in the New York area. I spent many years of my adult life living in Jerusalem, um, in the land of Israel, and have deep relationships with Palestinians, with Israelis, with, you know, I'll get more into it, but you know, I really believe that God doesn't you know, make jokes around things and has really put two people into the land to be able to figure out how are we actually going to be here and live together. So I feel like there's a deep theological challenge and invitation that's been given to the people of the world right now, particularly to the Jewish people and Palestinian and wider Arab peoples at the moment. But I'm located here in the United States and I've been in the Boston area for the last 30 years and I run a organization called Kirva which is about bringing Jewish spiritual wisdom and lineages to the work of social change. So I work with social change active, uh, different issues. And uh, David, I mean, I want to jump right into to some of this. We had a conversation with Jared Goldfarb out of Jerusalem now a month and a half ago. And one of the conversations that, that he and I had together was about how October the 7th awakened a, a sense of generational trauma in the Jewish people. And, and I think that was a really important framing for us who are struggling to move toward a pro-human understanding. It's just easier to live in the binaries and the polarities, right? We're pro-Israel, we're pro-Palestinian, you know, and all of my Israeli and Palestinian kin in particular, you included as an American Jewish rabbi, would say to be pro-Israel or to be pro-Palestinian is actually to import that crisis or conflict into our own streets and into our own bodies. The journey that we have to take is a journey of moving from pro-one or pro-other to pro-human and a growing, a deeper understanding of what's happening inside of our Jewish kin and our Palestinian kin right now was very important a month and a half ago. I wonder if you would add any commentary or any thoughts from your very unique vantage point around the October 7th moment in helping us understand more fully how that is fueling some of the ways in which we're watching the Israeli government and power brokers in particular respond to this. And then a little bit later in the conversation, I do want to invite you to, to offer a critique from your point of view. It, maybe there's more than trauma going on here. 
And uh, would be interested in hearing your reflections on that. But any framing or commentary that you might think would be helpful for us is we're trying to really hold on to a pro-human approach, especially with both Jewish and Palestinian kin in this moment. Sure, yeah. Th- and Jared is an old, old friend as well. Yeah, I mean, October 7th was a huge trauma for us. I mean, I felt it in my body. I still do. There's something about the kinship that we have among within the Jewish people. We're small people, you know, 15 million people in the world. And, and uh, well, of course, we're human first. The Jewish peace and Jewish what binds us is very deep and very thick. And so, like, I have been feeling that in my body from the time that happened. So, all the more so, you know, people who were there, that the level of impact on people was awesome. And this was, you know, the state of Israel was set up in a way to prevent something from this ever happening to Jews again. And so, there was a trauma on a number of levels, on the physical level, but also on an understanding of one's own safety and that that happened. There was for the there was a, uh, I'd say initially, but still going on, a sense of coming together in the Jewish world of, wow, this thing happened. We have to come together and support people who've been displaced, people who've been traumatized in this. Um, I think we're seeing now the Jewish community is diverse. And so <clears throat> you have many Jews who are, you know, are still really focused there on dealing with the trauma that happened in Israel. And then you have other Jews who are really focusing on, okay, how do we stop the killing of Palestinians that's happening in Gaza that is part of the war effort, but is also a lot, a lot, a lot of people are getting killed. So people are kind of like finding themselves in different places where they're putting their energy right now in the joint world. But there's no doubt that was a awakening, like in my own work and my own spiritual and emotional work, an awakening of experiences by my family of pogroms going back into the 1880s, 1890s in Europe. I mean, that's where my family came to the United States after pogroms in the 1880s broke out throughout Russia and the Ukraine and Poland. And those memories are alive. Like those are up and those are there from that incident. So, you know, I don't say all of us, but many of us are living with those memories of whatever it was, whatever part of your Jewish history was, whether you're from Syria or Iraq or Poland or whatever it was, this is in our background and obviously capped off with the Holocaust. And so that's there and it's alive. I don't know if you want to bring it to the current, you know, how the war is being executed. Uh, that's over, a yeah, bring us there. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I think in the immediate right on October 7th, October 8th, you heard things coming out of, you know, it, it, people in the military and upper echelons that were, I think, very trauma response things that were awful uh, ways in t- talking about Palestinians. And I think there's a, there's a variety of things happening in Israel and the Israeli government right now from, you know, from the very, very extreme wing that is like racist and supremacist. And, you know, you and I have spoken a lot about your work, working with Christian supremacy and dealing with that. And I, you know, respect you tremendously, you know, for your work you're doing there. In the Jewish world, it's much smaller. And I don't think it's as harmful of impact of level of Christian supremacy, but we have it too within our people. We have it too. And you see it get acted out on certain in the areas of the fringes in the Jewish uh, in the world in Israel. What was so dangerous about what Netanyahu did of bringing in the more extremists into his government was he gave a platform and voice to people who have supremacist views. And that is something that I and others have been really working strongly against. And those people don't have, you know, should not be in power. I think there's 
you know, our communities are what our communities are. And people have, you know, their positions on things, but there's people who should be in power, not in power. And so some of those people are in power now. They're not in power as far as the military decisions that are happening or in the war cabinet, anything like that. So I personally, and you can push back on me on it, but I don't think those kind of more racist or supremacist impulses are what are driving this war right now. I really think it's a strong feeling that we cannot live next to uh, a Hamas with an active military. And Hamas is an idea more than anything. So you're not going to eliminate Hamas, but I think the effort is really about that. And it's about eliminating that. Whether there's an end game with all kinds of things, I'm not a military expert. Seems like there's a lot of confusion. I don't know. But I don't think the drive right now is just pure trauma response, revenge, have to destroy. I really don't. And I know I have people I respect very much who disagree with me, but I think it is coming out. We have to do this work to dismantle the military. And I, look, I'm not a military expert. So you're not, you know, you get, yeah. you have a rabbi, you know, talking about this stuff. So yeah, that's what yeah. you're getting. I don't want people to take your thin who are listening to me. This is my take that there may also be signaling this happening to other countries like Iran and Hezbollah and Lebanon and others of this level of violence we're seeing and violent response in a strategic way that's saying like, don't mess with us. Our deterrent capability was just totally undermined by this attack. And so we're attacking back. Why it has to be this level of death and destruction, guys, I do not understand. And, you know, if I were the one in charge or wanted to be in charge, I'd let that to go way, way down. And this would be a much more surgical type of approach. But and so anyway, that's my, that, that's my take is I don't think it's coming from a pure revenge trauma kind of place. I think there is strategy that's going on here too. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just really respect your confession that you're not a military expert, but I, and you are a rabbi and I'm looking for your analysis and inviting yeah. your analysis to, to help us see it from your point of view. I was just reading yesterday, you know, that with some, I think at last some increase in pressure from the United States, uh, mm -hmm. uh, toward, I don't think that yet the Biden administration is saying we need to move to a ceasefire. This needs to stop. I think they keep saying you need to be a little bit more surgical and intentional because the human catastrophe is just astronomical in yeah. Gaza, as I think you and I would both agree. And then I watch in response to that, Netanyahu say, we will fight to the end. And I'm just curious, again, not that you're in the Knesset or a military, but as a Jewish rabbi, when you hear the leader of the nation state of Israel say, we will carry this to its conclusion or fight to the end. How do you hear those words? And I wonder, like, what does it awaken in you? And what does it drive you to do with your work among the American Jewish community? Yeah, thanks for that question. I don't trust Netanyahu at all. So, like, what he says, now he is the leader of Israel. So, like, what he says is very important. But I don't trust him at all. I think he's purely now living for his own survival and political survival. I think there's a huge, I don't know, it just, it is a major problem in leadership right now in Israel. So when he says something like that, I feel like he's, you know, he always says things like that to play to this, like the most, you know, base instincts of people and people's fears. And so I try to listen to people like commanders for Israel security which are, you know, 500 or more 
generals high up Israeli military people are retired who've organized themselves as a lobby. And, you know, I really trust them and their take on things that, you know, things could be more surgical and things could be done in a different way. And we're probably going to need to negotiate with Hamas at some point. Like Hamas is not completely going away. So, you know, I hate to say that, honestly, it's like painful for me, Chair, and I want you and your audience to know that it's painful for me to say that about the prime minister of Israel, because I think, you know, I love Israel. I feel deeply connected to Israel. I've lived in Israel many years. I wish there wasn't a leader like this right now. Let's talk about tension. I want to pull a thread through line here to your reflections on October 7th and what it awakened in the souls of our Jewish kids. That is, you know, from the time of Esther, maybe even before, but the time of Esther through the medieval times to the pogroms of Europe, most notably, obviously the Holocaust, the world has been trying to erase your people mm -hmm. like that, that, and I just, I, the reason I, I bring that up is because I think people who sit in my social location, who have no experience of what it's like to be a part of a people group that the world has tried to erase. It's just impossible for us to understand what the level of trauma that, that is etched into the DNA, the generational societal trauma that's there. And I also want to add, and this is for my, my, my American Christian kin, like we have been on the forefront of these efforts to erase our Jewish kin from the planet. You know, so I don't want to suggest that, hey, wow, here we are, just kind of the merciful, compassionate few on the side, being like, boy, we wish this didn't happen. I mean, the world tried to exterminate the Jews in World War II. And specifically when we're talking about Germany, many of them were Lutherans, Christians. Right. Yeah. You know, and so like there's again, there's a responsibility that we hold as American Christians, not only in the command of Jesus to love beyond neighbor to enemy, but like we have a fair amount of lament and confession and repentance and reparation to do as it relates to our Jewish kin. For us to support Israel, on a, you know, the unequivocal support of Israel to destroy the Palestinian people is not the way that we do the work of repair with our Jewish kin. So I, I bring that up just because I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a U.S. American, I am a follower of Jesus, and I'm seeking to become a pro-human peacemaker. Yeah. You are a Jewish rabbi, a U.S. American, and seeking to become a pro-human peacemaker. We also carry ways in which we've been socialized to see the world, instructions of enemy, you know, theologies and biases and all these. We carry these things into th those three realities that we're holding in tension. Talk to us, if you would, uh, about how you're working to hold those three things in tension within, at least those three things in tension within your own body. I am a Jewish rabbi, I am a U.S. American, and I'm seeking to become a pro-human peacemaker. What is that like mm -hmm. to hold that tension? Mm. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I do want to say a word before that just about anti-Semitism, and you were talking about it, you know, in the erasure of our people. I mean, that is such, like, that's with us, you know, all the time, and... And, and I think anti-Semitism is one of the root things that's happening right now in this conflict. And so for me, I have what I, you know, you know what I ask you to do. I have, I, so maybe we'll get to that, but I'll say for me, I think it's really important. And one of the things I'm thinking about right now is a theology of sharing the land and that, you know, the land of Israel is 
core and essential to the Jewish people. And back to biblical times, all the way up through, we pray to return to the land of Israel in our prayers three times a day, throughout our, you know, our self-understanding of who we are as a Jewish people. And, and then contemporary political Zionism coming out of nationalism in the 19th century, there's a 120-year discussion debate in the Jewish community about it. And is it the right thing like for us to reconstitute ourselves as a Jewish commonwealth? in our ancient homeland now or not. And that was a very live debate conversation through the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, 20s, 30s, really until the Holocaust and the establishment of the state. Then it became, the sense was so much, whoa, like the Jewish people really need this thing. Because if this were here in its full way before the Holocaust, we would have saved 6 million Jews. So the debate kind of got pushed off the table at that point. And then after 67, even more so. What you're seeing now is like it coming roaring back because it was really like suppressed for a long time. And so you're seeing like, you know, the vast majority of the Jewish people believe in Jewish self-determination in our ancient homeland, the land of Israel. But you're seeing more voices around questioning that. Is that really the right route to go? Is that there? So as a rabbi in North America, for me, it's what I'm working on right now and in my body, as someone who deeply believes in the importance of Jewish self-determination in our ancient homeland, the land of Israel, that we have a theology around that, that can understand that there's also another people that has been connected to that land for hundreds of years. Maybe not as far back historically as we have been, but has been living on that land for hundreds of years and is home for them. And we have a theology, very clear theology of that's maximalist around God giving the land to the Jewish people and Joshua and coming in and the conquering and the Bible and all that. I don't think that's the theology for this moment. I think we're in a moment that actually is way more nuanced and we need a strong theology about sharing the land and being here together. And I don't think that's been articulated really strongly yet. There are people working on it. There's some strands around it. I mean, I'm from it, had some really interesting thoughts around that of how to be in the land together. And it's not saying one state, two state federation, anything political solution, but on a theological level, how, what does God want from us? And how do we be our full Jewish selves in relationship with Arab, Palestinian, Muslims, and Christians in the land that we all love and Holy land. So that's one piece that's in my, it's in my head and my body. I'm really holding, thinking about that a lot. The other is how to hold the Jewish people together given that there's these differences I just described around understandings of what it means to have Jewish sovereignty in the ancient homeland. I have a piece coming out that's about what's called diasporism, which is a belief in kind of just playing up of Jewish you know, communities, Jewish heritage, lineages around the world, and downplaying the centrality of the land of Israel and centrality of Israel versus Zionism, which is Zionism means a lot of things, a lot of different people. When I say it, I mean Jewish self-determination, the right of Jewish self-determination in our ancient homeland. Could be part of the homeland, could be all of it. It's a broad term. For me, you know what I mean by it. I mean in a shared way with Palestinians. Though that and diasporism, I think, are very important that we somehow figure out a way to bridge them. And I'm holding that a lot in my heart because many of my students are more lean towards diasporist, internationalist, very progressive, but also I'm very connected and personally connected to Israel. So how do we hold that all together? So there's all that. And then on the human piece is, you know, again, as I said, we're humans first. And I think it's a deep spiritual 
task to expand our sense of who's included. When I think of the I and we, to keep expanding that beyond, there's like me, there's my body, there's my soul, there's my family, there's the Jewish people, there's Americans, there's the world, there's the planet. And like that is a spiritual task to what one of my teachers, Rabbi Shimon Shkup, calls expand the I, expanding the I. So while it's important to care for oneself, that self now includes everyone. And that's something I'm constantly working on. And I'll end with this, that my heart work right now is keeping my heart open to the suffering that's all around and being able to say, ultimately, we have to figure this out together. And so I'm not going to get pulled into the binaries. I'm going to try to keep my heart open, but I'm also going to tend to those broken places in my heart too, that are so angry and so hurt and so all that. So that's my, those are all the ways. Yeah, this is yeah. Like, yeah, that's beautiful. Help us understand like when it gets hard to, to resist the binaries mm-hmm. moving in the direction of pro-human. What does hard feel like? What makes it hard for you? And then what are some of the practices that you're engaging in to stay committed and integrous to a pro-human approach rather than a polarized approach? Yeah, I can shift in those binaries in a minute, you know, yeah. depending like what I just read or something. So where it gets hard, when I hear I'll, a line like the apartheid state of Israel committing genocide on the Palestinians, I feel like that's a libelous, that kicks up for me. Like that sounds like a slanderous, libelous way of talking about a country and, and the people that I love. And so I can go into a binary there of like, you know, I have all these like, you know, arguments forming in my head and one-liners and, you know, that's what goes on for me. And I can feel honestly a contraction in my heart. That's one direction. And another direction, I'll hear something like really like racist or anti-Arab or something from, you know, someone more on the right and same thing will happen. I'll get that contraction and have all my one-liners and ways I want to fight them and and that. So those are kind of what it can look like for me. And then the practice, uh, you know, in those moments is to, to like, you know, to breathe, to take a step back and it's really finding the good point. This is, you've probably heard me talk about this in the past. One of my, my, I'm from a lineage of one of the Hasidic, you know, Jewish mystical lineages, uh, Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. And he was in Ukraine in the 18, early 1800s. And he talks about finding the good points that find it's, it's, if you see someone that you even think is wicked or bad, like look hard, seek, there's something good that they've done in their life. There's something positive. And if you really can look and focus on that and meditate on that positive, it can actually change things in ways that are not rationally understandable, but it can move them and it can move us in the way we relate to them. And then we do that on ourselves and we try to find those good in ourselves. So that practice has been essential for me. And so either the things I just described before to like, what's the good point? What's the good point? And for many of my people on, you know, my beloveds and students and people who are more on the left, it's like, wow, what a passion for justice. What a passion for an end of suffering. And I'll really connect and see that and hold that and see where that's coming from. And for my people on more on the right, it's more of like, well, what a passion for care for their people and wanting to protect their people. And if I can really plug into that, then it opens my heart. That's beautiful. Like that, and I just want to acknowledge the inertia that you said it earlier. You know, it, I can fall into a binary in a minute. I can fall into a binary in a second. You know, like the inertia and the seduction of the binary is just so prevalent that it, like the contemplative work. Because like when you say finding the good points, that requires pace. That's slow work. 
that actually requires that I first can acknowledge, whoa, I'm slipping into a binary here. And my heart, I like what you said, my heart is contracting or, you know, it's becoming constricted, you know, to be able to say, I'm acknowledging that is happening. I think that's the first step. And then I heard you say, now I have to interrogate that mm-hmm. and I have to look here and say, where is the good? Where is the good? What can I affirm in this? While I might not adhere to the ideology, what it, where's the passion? Where's the desire for justice? Or the work that we're doing is like, what are the values that undergird what's being said or the behavior here, you know, that I can resonate with? That's slow work. And it's not like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to do that now. We're either going to become the kinds of people who do that as an ethic, as a way of being, as a habit, or we're not going to do it at all. We're just going to keep sliding into the inertia or, you know, toward the binaries, which actually cause us to reach for power rather than the hands of one another, then perpetuate the cycles of violence. And then, you know, here we are. Let me ask you, let me return to theology just for a moment. Rabbi to pastor here. You know, you said a thing in my opening remarks, I was talking about how at the, one of the things that you and I have discovered together is that the essence of our creeds or our traditions is a shared passion commitment to be a part of healing the world. And, and so I'm curious, you know, you said that, you know, once upon a time, there maybe was a theology that justified violence in your tradition. And now you're saying that theology isn't helpful right now. We need to be forming a theology of sharing our interdependence or solidarity. I would say between these two theologies, I would say one is congruent with what I think lies at the essence of at least my understanding of the Jewish tradition from your point of view and the Christian tradition. And one of them is incongruent with the core, the essence of our faith. How would you interact with that? You know, like a theology that endorses violence, a theology that propels solidarity. And then at the core of our traditions is this commitment to be a part of repair, restoration, healing. Talk us through that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's where I, that's where a lot of the work needs to happen and working through that. You know, the Hebrew Bible is a story of a people coming into a land and there's battles and wars and a lot of wars going on there. And it's, you know, it's a story of a nation over time. And so there is going to be violence there. There's also going to be incredible social justice and the, the prophets. And so it's got all of it. It's got, you know, kind of everything in there. And then, you know, why, one of the reasons why I think it's not the right appropriate theology for today, and it's like, there's just a fundamentalism behind it. It's like, which is totally antithetical to Judaism. I'm not saying anything about Christianity or anything else, just for Judaism, for ourselves, to kind of look at the Bible, look at the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, in a fundamentalist way, without any commentary, without any lens of history or anything, is that's so not Jewish. Like, that's not, the Talmud was developed out of a whole process of, that we interpret the Torah, we interpret the ancient text. So just that's an editorial comment. But you find that happening in some quarters now of just grabbing a theology that's 3,000 years old and trying to apply it right now to the situation. And, you know, one of the challenges, and this is, you know, I accept this challenge, and I mean, it's not me to accept, I live in the United States, but on that, for my people, that we've come back into a relationship with power, which is, you know, coming back, setting up a state, that is now a relationship with power that the Jewish people have not had to deal with really in since the second commonwealth before the Roman destruction. So it's a long time of out of practice. And to just kind of grab stuff from the biblical era to bring it into the 20th century as theologically appropriate, like that makes no sense, you know, whatsoever. So that's incongruent, you know, for those reasons. We live in a much more interdependent world now. And, you know, we have a 
conception coming out of the enlightenment of human rights and the individual. And I'm a modern Orthodox Jew in that I believe in the fidelity to the Jewish legal tradition as it's developed over several thousands of years with a firm full engagement in modernity and the modern world and holding those. And there's often tensions between those things. And so in this situation as well, there's going to be a tension. So we have a strong ethical tradition that's at the core of repair that you've mentioned. And now we have power. And this is what you deal with. I know you're, you know, again, on a much, I don't want to compare. I want to be very careful here that I don't want to compare Jewish power and Christian power. Like we, I think there's a way that with, because of anti-Semitism, it's like, oh, Israel, Jews, they're the ones who are the cause of all the problems in the world. We're not. Unfortunately, my friend, your people are much more. And, and, and let, me, let me just butt in there for a second. Thank you for that. Because here's my sense. We, especially Christians in the West, because we've built such a construction of enemies, specifically being Muslims, that all of the language over here is, oh, Islam is the most violent religion and the most dangerous people and yada, yada, yada. When if we're going to see the world as it is, and we're going to take a, a sober, honest, and intelligent analysis of history, we have to confess that the Christian religion for the last 1700 years has been the most violent movement on the planet. You know, and so you're right. The reason I'm asking you the questions of theology and the theology of violence versus a theology of solidarity and things like that is I'm watching American Christians, at least for the last 75 years, adopt a theology of dominance right. and that God endorses violence to accomplish our meaning right. as our preferred theology. And that's right. been baked inside of us such that we watch right. what's happening in Israel, in, in Gaza in particular, and we're like, well... I may be uncomfortable with blood, but like, isn't this what God is doing in the world? Right. This is so we're not just a, hey, can we just change people's mind by reading some news clippings and some better stories? This is a theodicy that needs to happen. It's a theological renovation that we have to go through in the West. I think specifically in the Christian tradition to be able to actually grow our circle of human concern, expand the reach of our empathy and actually live into our mandate to love everyone, including enemies. So I'll butt back out, but I'm just with you. Uh, amen. It's why, it's why I love you. One of the many reasons I love you. And uh, I just wanted to get a sense of this, mention a sense of proportionality as I'm about to talk about Jews, just to like keep it in proportion to kind of where the real damage has happened in the world. So now with that said, yes, we have this same struggle and that for 2000 years, we didn't have to actually deal with it and have that struggle. And so we could develop some supremacist you know, theology or ideas that honestly, when you're getting like stepped on and crushed so much by the crusades and pogroms and all this kind of stuff, inquisitions to like feel, you know what? We're better than other people. Like that actually is a survival strategy. That's a survival strategy. Just the, and you're being erased so much to kind of help yourself, you know, have some self-esteem and hold on to something. Once you then get into power and power over people, which is situation in Israel, then you have to actually reevaluate that. And say, you know what? Those ideas, those things are developed. Those, like, let's retire those right now because you know what? We actually have power, and we're coming back into a situation where we get to actually make decisions about things and protect ourselves, all that kind of stuff. So now you need a theology of power, and which is very much, I think, the work you're doing. You need a theology, and Jews, Judaism needs a theology of power now about how do we? What does God? What do we think God really wants? And you will, in the Talmud, there's a beautiful scene where it talks about God praying. And what does God pray? It asks. 
And God prays that God's compassion can be stronger than God's anger and that God's patience can be stronger than a sense of vengeance. And so God is praying to be a compassionate God with power, knowing that God has power and God can do things. We always want compulsion. We always want patience to be able to temper what's there. And so on a human level, we need to develop that as well and be able to know well that it actually influences policy and the way we think about things as people who now have power. So, I, you know, it's very hard work. It's, but I think this is where we need to go theologically is how, for Jews is how do you take a 2000 year ethical tradition that wasn't in power, that developed excellent ethical intuitions, bring it together with power and state power to live in a way that is honoring the vision of our prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let me, what, uh, go ahead. No, no, we're not there yet. That's all. <laughs> well, I, I was just, so then as I read Genesis 12 and you're the rabbi, mm-hmm. I was a biblical student. You're the rabbi. <laughs> Genesis 12. I see the task of the people to not to conquer and dominate, but to offer unprecedented hospitality and in so doing put on display in visceral, tangible ways, who God is and what God is like. And so are you, are you inviting the Jewish community back forward, but back into like that level of like, we need to re-embrace our destiny and our vocation as those who demonstrate radical hospitality and in so doing demonstrate what God is like. Amen. No, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't say that better. 100%. That's our role. I mean, that's what we're doing here as children of Abraham and the family that became the Jewish people. And in in Genesis 19, God says, you know, I know Abraham and he's going to teach his children the ways of righteousness and justice and kindness. And that, right, that is our mission. And the reason you have a platform of a state, of a place, of a Jewish commonwealth, land of Israel, is to broadcast that out to the world because that is our mission. And uh, you know, we're a little ways away from that right now, but that is it. So, okay. So we just got really clear on the destiny Mm -hmm. of our Jewish Mm -hmm. kin. Mm -hmm. You have been so helpful for me in calling me in our work with global immersion as we're companioning American Christians on this journey Mm -hmm. from a religion that dominates to a faith that restores into our destiny and our unique calling uh, in this world. Talk to us about that from your perspective. We talked about like I'm the one leading with, I think the yeah. Christian tradition is the most dangerous movement on yeah. the planet historically, yeah. which is a total break from the essence of our movement. What is the essence yeah. of our movement from your point of view? And what would you call us to as American Christians in this moment? And then why does it matter in terms of what's happening over there? What are the implications we live into our destiny over there? Right. Yes. Let me say, I might not say it directly in that order, but for, it's, it's coming to mind. I want to say, that to help us, we want to be allies to Jewish people to help us live into the mission that I just described is our mission. We need an end to anti-Semitism and we need an end to anti-Judaism. And so that'll come to your yeah, Christian role. But it's been one of the primary perpetrator of that anti-Judaism for, you know, 1700 years. The way I understand the Christian role is that you know, from my reading of scripture, which is again, now I'm like very amateur here on this, but I'm talking to a pastor, but with Jesus coming with the message of love 
And that is the primary value and the message of love. And so we need Christians to live into that, to really take that seriously, that it's a universal love, but it's a universal love that understands difference and doesn't have to make everyone like you. And there's an ability to different love because when you really love someone, you actually honor who they are and give them space to be who they are. And so if Christianity and Christians could really be that in the world, I mean, that would be, that would raise up so much. And so for our, you know, in this conflict going on right now, to just really bring a message of love in your hearts to both Palestinians and Jews, that's what's needed. We need for our Christian allies. And I know there's Christian Palestinians as well, but I'm talking more Western right now. Christians is to be for, deeply for Palestinians, to be deeply for Jews and Israeli Jews particularly. And that is going to take you digging into your wells of love, probably more than, you know, is easy to do. But I think that's what we need. As I can tell you as Jews, Israelis, we need, I'm not Israeli, but as Jews, we need to know that love is there. The Israelis feel so hated and they need to know, okay, we're not hated. We see you. We understand that the historical threads of what's happening here. We also understand your need for a place. That's a place that you can be for Palestinians, all the same, that you deserve a place you be. And we're going to bring that love to you. So I think if Christians can live into that message of Jesus, I think we'll be doing much better. Oh my gosh. Like, I don't know. My heart's just pounding personally right now, as it usually does when you and I are rocking together, David, it's like, I need you to be the best essence of you and you need need me to be the best essence of me. Yeah. And we're doing this work within our unique communities, you know, and I'm just like, even looking at you on the screen, it's like this kind of solidarity in lockstep, you know, fingers intertwined in the work of radical love, unprecedented hospitality, it fundamentally will change the world. Where I have despair, and as you're in Hanukkah and I'm in the Advent season right now, you know, like Advent for us is this contemporary participation in an ancient anticipation Mm. that things are not yet what they will be, you know? And my frustration right now is that billions and billions of dollars are being invested in theologies of dominance and ethics of dominance and politics of dominance and economies of dominance. And I'm like, what we... Now is the time to raise up the peacemakers who have awakened imaginations to a different future where we all flourish together. And I think it takes relationships like these, not only between, it takes thousands, if not millions of relationships like these, where we are in lockstep together. This is how I think we we remake the world together. Speak specifically, if you would, to your, and then, and then, boy, we could keep rapid, but we got to move on with our day and let people roll. But yeah, no, I think I got a meeting too. Let's yeah, you you have you have an opportunity here in in this moment. And for those of you who are listening into the recording, for those of you who are listening to the podcast episode, um, it's not very often that we get a rabbi to, to say to us as American Christians to remind us who we need to be. And I wonder, taking it geopolitically as well, the intersection between American Christians, evangelicals, and this crisis in Israel and Palestine that has been going on for 75 years, how would you encourage us right now? What are some of the very specific practical things that, that you 
would call us to right now in ways that would move the needle toward a ceasefire, toward a just and lasting peace, toward solidarity. Yeah, speak to us really practically. Sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I'd say a conflict going back, I'd, probably, I'd put it back probably 120 years, not just 75. But yeah, we need any effort right now going towards dealing with the conflict right now needs to hold both concern for Israel and concern for the Palestinians. It really needs to have both. Like it needs to serve for the safety of, and really take into account like what Hamas did and what Hamas keeps saying they want to do with Israel if they could do it and taking into account the destruction of Palestinian lives that's happening in Gaza and that both those things and the hostages, obviously, and the hostages need to go home. So it's really a holding both sides. That's, I think, is when you're kind of thinking through your advocacy, thinking through your statements, thinking through your lobbying, whatever the kind of things you might be doing on this, organizations you're giving money to, it's, are they doing that? Are they able to articulate that they understand that there's suffering happening all around and that needs to be tended to on both sides of this conflict? And I think that's a lens to think through of this. And maybe you're taking more advocacy around like stopping the bombing of the Palestinians. Like that's where your advocacy is. But is the way you're thinking about it are you also acknowledging that there was tremendous suffering on the Israeli side and danger from Hamas and the way Hamas is speaking and not, you know, promoting a by any means necessary type of approach to liberation? That's not helpful. That is not helpful. So I'm giving us some guidelines or parameters for what people can do in their different kind of advocacy and why they're doing that. I think those are the kind of things that I think can move the needle. Things that don't, that are like purely one-sided, either all Ra-Israel or Ra-Hamas or not caring about Israel at all, those are just going to dig in sides more and are not going to ultimately get us to, a, to anything positive. And to those of us who maybe are fearing overwhelmed, fatigued by the carnage and feel like what we want to do or need to do is just kind of tap out of this altogether, how would you encourage us to both take good care of ourselves, but not disengage. Yeah, that's really important. Well, that way take care of yourselves, you know, whatever that is, if it's exercise or it's prayer or communion with people, like whatever that is, like keep doing your practices. Don't make this a time you stop doing your practices. So keep doing your practices. And then I think human connection. So if you know anyone connected to this conflict in some way, whether you actually know Israelis, you know, Palestinians over there, you know, Palestinians over here in the United States or even, or Jewish, you know, guys or Muslim, but anyone who might have a stake somewhere in here, I would say, get the personal connection, keep that going, shoot them text with emojis, have a conversation, go out to coffee. That's, I think the best way not to disengage instead of like, you know, the doom scrolling or that kind of thing. Please keep up the human connections with people. People need to hear from you. My friend, I'm so grateful for you. And for those of you who are, who are tuning in right now live and for those who are viewing the recording of this. Would you just reflect in the comment section, a word of gratitude or affirmation of David and one of the ways that peacemakers, um, one of the, like a fuel for us is to understand that the contributions we're making in the world actually have some impact. <laughs> you know? So if there's been something that has been said in this particular conversation that has really moved you or that you lash on to, would you just reflect that back to David in the comment section so that he can see some of that and see some of your gratitude here in the moment? While that's happening, David, recognizing that we are in the Hanukkah season and the Advent season, yeah. and I'm wondering, how is what's happening right now? This is my last question. How is what's happening right now 
impacting or adjusting or deepening your experience of Hanukkah? And would you bring us in maybe just to a tradition or an experience that you'll be sharing in light of this as a family or as a community this Hanukkah season? Okay. We're catching me on the very last moments of Hanukkah. We're on our yeah. eighth day today. We lit the eighth candles last night. So as Shabbat comes in, we'll be finishing. Yeah. What I've been focusing on a lot, people know the Hanukkah's, we light these candelabra of eight candles celebrating a victory that the, um, the Maccabees Jews had versus the Greeks many years ago. But the, the, what I've been focusing on is that light that we light is symbolic of a hidden light that's there all the time in every situation. And we do it at the darkest time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere as a symbolic of that, that we generate light. That we humans, Hanukkah is a holiday that we have to open up that space for God's holy presence to come into the world and make that light shine here. We do that. And we can do that all year round, but specifically we symbolize it at this time of year when it's dark. And so as I was sitting there last night, every night, looking at the candles, I was really trying to take that light into my soul. And so I could carry it with me going out because this stink, this is a horrible situation we're right now. So much death and destruction and just horrible. And, and we need to see that light. Now light is always there. And so that was how I was celebrating Hanukkah and how I was talking about Hanukkah this year is use that light to remind you that you can always find light and we make that space for God to come in. That's beautiful. Then for my family, from a Christian point of view, this being Advent, I'm resonating right now with the cries of folks 2000 years ago who felt anguish and pain and, and were crying out for God to make good on a promise probably had longings for God to do that with a demonstration of power. And, and instead the Christmas moment for us is of this beautiful picture of a God who would have chosen power, but entered in with vulnerability and mm. powerlessness that the restoration of the world has always required vulnerability and powerlessness rather than building power in order to conquer so that that's how I'm in light of the anguish mm -hmm. of this moment. It's mm -hmm. bringing me deeper into this. Oh, I actually wish God would use power sometimes, but it's only ever been about powerlessness right you now. And so friends who are listening in, we bless you with that. And, yeah. and David, what an absolute gift to be with you. Thank you, my friend, a blessing on you and your family in this time. Thanks so much. You, you give me hope. Being with you gives me hope. So let's do it. Likewise. All right. Take care. Okay. Thanks so much. Everyone. Bye -bye. See you, friends. Take care. Friends, as the year-end approaches, I want to invite you to consider investing in peace by investing in global immersion. Your contribution allows us to continue to host conversations like this one. We're a nonprofit dependent on donations to continue our work producing inspiring media and training both everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to mend divides. Special thanks to our Embers community of monthly donors, investors in peace, who make the virtual immersion and this podcast possible. You can join our Embers community of monthly donors with a recurring gift of any amount. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion and donate at globalimmerse.org.